Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and I'm joined a particularly rainy Monday afternoon in Westminster by Alison McGovern, Rachel Reeves and Stephanie Lloyd. And we're going to talk about the Tory leadership race. Exciting. Well, what's going Grim, to happen next terrifying. with Brexit? Horrendous. <laughs> and one of our favourite female politicians, Margaret Bonfield, because there's a very special anniversary that's just passed. So it's lovely to have you all with us. Now, first things first, it's been an eventful morning in the Tory leadership race, hasn't it? Uh, we've had a couple of high-quality interventions, uh, firstly by Matt Hancock and secondly by Dominic Raab. Uh, what did as we Dominic all think Raab, then? Has Dominic Raab decided to like say that he's a feminist now? No. Or is he just trying to no. pretend that he... Like, you don't need to be a feminist thing to do things for women. So, is that his... Take now. I think so. So he had Maria Miller, who was Women in Equalities Minister for mm-hmm. two years, about five years ago, introduce him. And I think, I'm chair of the Equalities. Oh, she did, she did do quite a lot, to be fair to her. I mean, and she essentially made a joke about how she would convince him to call himself a feminist at some point. And everyone was like, ha ha, yeah, this is a bit awkward, isn't it? Yeah, but then you've also got Jeremy Hunt, who I think has said he's a feminist, but wants to cut the limit uh, for when women can have abortions to 12 weeks. So it's just, it's just you like can call a f- yourself a feminist, but if you don't live up to what is required, they're pretty hollow words, aren't they? It's just like a free hit for them though, right? Like they basically see women's right to choose as just like, well, I mean, that's just one of those things, you know, I need to win the Tory leadership. So forget it. I mean, they don't see any cost to that, right? I guess so. And that's why today we've seen from Boris Johnson uh, the announcement of tax cuts that will only benefit uh, 10% or so of people who uh, are of working age, uh, a £6,000 tax cut if you're earning more than £80,000 a year, at the same time that our public services are struggling and many people are on low-paid, insecure work. Nine, That's the priorities of this uh, this Conservative £9.6 billion pounds this year, next year, every year. <sighs> That, yeah. that is that is the choice they and it's make. It's very apparently. different from what Boris Johnson said during the referendum campaign mm. when he said there'd be three hundred and fifty million pounds a week for the NHS, and now he's launching his leadership bid. He doesn't mention the NHS, but he does mention tax cuts to better off in society. Just I amazing. I mean, it's really interesting from him. For once, we don't see him sort of on the morning radio shows chatting. Well, frankly bit of rubbish and instead he seems to send out sort of more junior ministers to explain why his 
serious, I'm using air quotes, um, policies are a great thing. I'm not, really, I'm not really surprised by that, though. Apologies, my voice is appalling today. So um, I thought it was quite nice and husky. Nice and husky. Um, I am, I'm not really surprised that he's doing that, though, because I think when you are seen as the front runner of which he is, if you look at all of the mm. polling in terms of the membership, it's kind of his to lose. Mm. And the one thing we know from Boris is the more people see of him, the more they realise how ridiculous he is. And actually, if he can just continuously spend his life, you know, if he can avoid lots of these situations, he will likely still remain the front runner if he gets on the ballot. So it doesn't really surprise me that everyone around him goes, Boris, you just be quiet for a moment and uh, let everybody else kind of make their continuous mistakes. But I thought, do you see Esther McVeigh doing her speech? No. About her leadership. She had not just, you know platitudes to Margaret Thatcher on the lectern in front of her she literally stuck a photo of Margaret Thatcher which is one of the strangest <laughs> things I've ever seen in politics yeah but then I think I mean I get that and I'm not a Margaret Thatcher fan at all if the Labour Party could ever elect a permanent leader and they became prime minister I mean I'm quite fond of that person myself yes but would you would you put photos of them in front of your lectern it was like a weird eulogy it was very odd no I mean my my staff did once get a copy of a picture of me. I was like once a meme for shushing Tories in the House of Commons. I did not know that. Yeah. Where is the format? Can we use it? Yeah. So Paging like, Stefan right it's, now. It's available. It's available from all good, you know, internets. <laughs> meme and, stores. <laughs> yeah. And like there was this picture of me shushing a load of Tories who were interrupting Angela Eagle. And I did walk into my office that week and one a member of my staff had got it on a T-shirt. And I was like, <laughs> okay, this is enough. <laughs> that is enough. Progress merch coming soon. Don't you dare. Alison Shishing Tories. You, you know I would. It sounds like yes. hotcakes. It would not. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, on that note, on the point about estimate Vey, are there any of the female Tory leadership candidates we have our eyes on? Because they sort of seem to have morphed into one blob, really. In the background, Do any of them so. have enough um, supporters to get through? Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think. I don't think estimate they will. I don't no. think Andrea Ledson. I mean, not that I'm the expert here, right? But yeah. I mean, well, I saw this morning that Ledson claims that she does, but I don't really know who or where hasn't from. Said who they are? No, <laughs> she only has four so far, and she needs eight. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, they could quite well be an all male uh, contest then. Mm. Yeah, and everyone, that's true, and Penny actually. Morgan's come out for Jeremy Hunt now, hasn't she? Yes, I believe and, so. And Amber Rudd, yeah, uh, which is interesting that Jeremy Hunt seems to be the least worst compromise well, for some of these women. Presumably, they were trying to decide on who the stop Boris candidate was, and after Michael Gove's implosion over the weekend, that person now looks like it's Jeremy Hunt. Yeah. On the note of Michael so... Gove's implosion, I was walking past Steve Bray on my way here, and he's um, moved to. Stop taking drugs. Stop Brexit. It's his current chart. Which <laughs> I this really is Steve, like. This is this is shouty Steve who shouts "Stop Brexit" mm. every morning yeah. outside the House um, of Commons. And now he's got something to add to it. He was also holding a can of Diet Coke, which I think might have a significance in terms of what happened. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what you mean there, Esther. No, no, but, no. Well, uh, I mean everybody else does. It's all over the front page of the newspapers. So. Right. Hypocrite right. Michael Gove banning teachers forever if they were. Uh, caught taking drugs but you can be prime minister yeah no probs apparently that is the case and did anyone see matt hancock this morning i i, I did not i mean matt, i'm not it's an app hancock i'm not i've never got over the uh the whole app disaster and then he seems to have wasn't he trying to like ban pages from the nhs or something as if yeah 
as if like some sort of new technology could make up for radical underfunding of social care for 10 years well i heard at his yeah at his launch he was handing out waffles and like free usb sticks which i think says everything <laughs> trying to be the millennial candidate mm. there we go that's yeah, it yeah, charges for phones and stuff as well and he was like because we've got the power i was like oh jeez <laughs> he didn't <laughs> he did he really did that wow. is where we've got to and these people could be prime minister dreary isn't it now, on the subject of Tory ministerial contenders, as fun slash depressing as this all is, um, we've got Rachel Reeves here on the podcast uh, because it's a very special anniversary now. I think it was on the 8th of June, so a couple of days ago, um, when Margaret Bonfield uh, became the first female cabinet minister and she was minister for Labour. Um, now, Rachel, I know we interviewed you a few weeks back now about your amazing book, Women of Westminster, uh, which you should all read. It's available in all good slash decent bookshops right now. Go and buy it. Um, but could you tell us a little bit more about Margaret for those who haven't heard the podcast and maybe what she might think of today's Tory runners and riders, if you can? Yeah, of course. So Margaret Bonfield was born in 1873 at a time, of course, when women did not have the votes, let alone the uh, the right to stand for Parliament. And she was the 10th of 11 children, grew up in a working class family in Somerset. And she left school at 14 to work in a shop. And she moved 150 miles away to Hove, where she was um, the assistant to a tailor in a tailor's shop. And she experienced both poverty growing up, but also exploitation in the workplace. And she uh, cared very much about, about that and wanted to change it. And one evening she was eating a supper of chips wrapped in newspaper. And that newspaper included an advert for the Shop Workers Union. Margaret Bonfield then went on and joined that trade union. She eventually became its assistant secretary, was the first woman to speak at Trades Union Congress, and in 1923 became the first Labour woman to be elected as a member of Parliament. And as you say, in 1929, um, 90 years ago, 90 years ago on the 8th of June, was the first ever woman to serve in a British cabinet. I just think a really remarkable story to go from those humble beginnings uh, and having the experiences that, that she did growing up and uh, in the workplace as a, as, a, as, a, as a girl or a young woman, and then going on to really such remarkable achievements. And she said um, some woman was bound to be the first and that it was in part an accident of dates and timing that was her. I think that rather underestimates her achievements and what she personally uh, succeeded in, in, in doing, which was beginning to change the face of what power looks like um, from a very male-dominated, and it's still male-dominated, but to begin to ebb away at, at some, of those, some of those barriers. Rach, why do you think that we don't know more about her? I mean, you know, Every time I hear you speak about uh, Margaret Bonfield, I it baffles me that we have this amazing person in our party's history, the first woman cabinet minister, somebody who was in a position of significant leadership at a crucial time, you know, during that that period of the um, the terrible decade of the 1930s. And yet there'll be people listening to this podcast now who are hearing her name for the first time. Why do you think that is? I think because the what happened 
1931 with the collapse of the Labour government and uh, Ramsay MacDonald then forming a, a, a national government with essentially a Conservative cabinet led by a, a Labour a, a Labour leader uh, and that split in the Labour Party and the electoral collapse of the Labour Party in 1931. So two years after becoming the first woman to serve in the cabinet, Margaret Bonfield lost her seat in Wall's End uh, just outside uh, Newcastle and never returned to, to, to Parliament. And it was an incredibly difficult time, as you allude to, um, uh, Ali, for for, for any politicians, but particularly Labour politicians, because this is, of course, pre-John Maynard Keynes. There was still a feeling, both in the US and in the UK, that you had to balance the books um, when there was a recession or, in that case, a, a depression. And so you had a government trying to balance the books at a time when uh, unemployment was um, rocketing and economic growth had disappeared. And so she was the Minister for Labour, responsible for um, uh, welfare payments and uh, uh, and um, assistance to the needy. And she was having to cut benefits or cut eligibility uh, for benefits. And as another Labour woman MP, Ellen Wilkinson, said, how can you means test somebody who has no means? And that was the accusation that was put to uh, Margaret Bonfield and most of all to, to Ramsay MacDonald. Now, Margaret Bonfield tried to support Ramsay MacDonald as a, as a minister, but in the end, she wouldn't go as far as Ramsay MacDonald did. Uh, and she she didn't, walked out of the yeah. government uh, and she wasn't prepared to countenance going into a coalition with the Conservatives. Uh, and so... You know, I don't think she is a figure of of, of hate in a way that perhaps Ramsay MacDonald is in the Labour Party. But she, in the end, was associated with those policies um, in the late 1920s and into the early 30s, which ultimately didn't um, uh, um, ultimately didn't succeed. But in a way, she had the hardest job in that um, in that cabinet. Uh, and, um, and 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 did her best, but it was a different economic time when the policies of 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 of, of Keynes and Keynesian economics of um, you know um, um, spend government spending more when private sector spending dried up that just wasn't um, that wasn't mainstream. Keynes hadn't written about those things uh, at that at that stage, and so you know if we can't judge in a way by today's standards. But the government was not a success. And in the end, her career, like so many politicians, ended in failure. But do you think, I mean, do you think when you hear that story, I mean, of course, you know, the, the 30s was was a very different time, as you say. And, you know, we had a kind of, we had a welfare system, but we didn't have the welfare state as we would think of it now. And yet she was made to carry the can then. Later on, we have Barbara Castle and in place of strife. Yes, and Barbara Castle, when uh, Harold Wilson made her the uh, the, the Minister for Labour, um, she said, I don't want to be another Maggie Bonfield. Uh, and that was a very sort of, that was that memory still was very raw. She would have remembered it when, when she was growing up. And of course, um, Barbara Castle came from a very Labour, very political um, family. And... It's interesting that she pointed to the experience of the first woman cabinet member uh, and she was just the fourth woman cabinet member. Uh, and so that was, you know, uh, the history of, of women in, in, in the Labour Party and, in the cabinet. And Wilson essentially puts her in the most difficult position of having to do trade union relationships at a time when, you know, 
in truth, the Labour Party had to grapple with the problem of industrial relations. She's then has to do in place of strife and, you know, is is essentially the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, she was hung out to dry by both the left and the right of the Labour Party uh, and 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 was, um, you know, made a, made a scapegoat. But in, in a way, Barbara Castle's chance of becoming Prime Minister was over when the response, particularly from the trade unions, who were even more dominant in the Labour Party than they are today, came out against in place of strife. Now, the irony is is that in place, if in place of strife had have gone through, perhaps we wouldn't have had the draconian trade union reforms that we saw just a decade later under Margaret Thatcher. If Barbara Castle had succeeded, perhaps we wouldn't have had Margaret and, Thatcher. And and then, I mean, I'll, I'll stop with my yeah, kind of like, I'm, are all women doomed in a minute? I was but then, about to say just before that, just for our listeners at home who might not be up on as late part history as we are, can one of you just tell me really briefly what in place of strife was? In place of strife was to try and um, deal with the number of days lost to strike um, uh, every year and to try particularly to reduce the number of wildcat strikes that were um, uh, unauthorised, had not been balloted uh, for. Uh, and, and it did seek to contain some of the powers of the trade unions. And so there was a reaction to it, of course, from the Labour Party. But the country wanted this reform. And in the end, it was offered with steroids by Margaret Thatcher, uh, who crushed the trade unions. If Barbara Castle's reforms had gone through, I think that the, the potency of Margaret Thatcher's um, call for reform would not have been so strong. And you may have been able to find a, a better balance between ensuring that tri- trade unions have the, the right to represent and organise their workers, but also uh, try and protect British industry so that you did not lose so many working days to strikes. Yeah. And I guess the, the the point that I was driving at, Hannah, was that, you know, the reason why we should care about Margaret Bonfield is because she is the first object lesson for women on the left of being put in a position of having the most difficult job and then being the sacrificial lamb uh, when the cries of betrayal come. Um, See also, you know, Harriet Harman and the uh, cut to loan parents benefit when Labour got into power after 1997. I think there's also this sort of story about how politics can be quite a lonely business. And it's not the same today, I don't think, for, for women in politics. You know, almost a third of MPs are, are women. So there's still more than twice as many men in Parliament. But for somebody like Margaret Bonfield, and indeed for Barbara Castle, and indeed to some extent for Harriet Harman, it was a very lonely business because they didn't have the same sort of sisterhood there to support and encourage them. Um, Margaret Bonfield, I think, was something like the fourth or fifth um, woman MP, uh, the first Labour woman in Parliament. And so they didn't have those support networks around them, which exist to a much greater extent today. And so when things go wrong, and, you know, politics is a pretty rough business at times, you need your friends and your supporters there to carry you through. And I don't think Margaret Bonfield had that, in part because she was very unusual in being a woman in Parliament. And I think that Ali is right, that it was the first lesson in the Labour Party to how women in politics and women at the top of politics are treated. Fantastic. Now we're going to take a short break, but stay tuned because we're going to come back in just a moment with a quick Brexit update. Uh, In the meantime, if you know any friends who don't listen to this podcast, don't forget to send it their way. 
Always much appreciated. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right, Alison, Rachel, I know we've been hearing a lot about the Tory leadership um, and what they think about Brexit and how they're all going to renegotiate a better deal and how it's all going to be fine. But what's Hello, actually... unicorns. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's either they're that or they're going to literally prorogue Parliament and none of you get a say. Yeah. What do yeah. you prefer? Yeah, so the choice between unicorns and Charles I. He's not so sure. Mm. What's going on? Well... I think literally the Tory leadership thing is probably the biggest um, unicorn-shaped spanner in the world um, because they don't want to confront reality. The The Conservative Party has got itself into a position where it thinks that if only they talked off and stand up to Brussels, somehow they can have all the things that they want and all the access to European markets that they want and none of the responsibilities. And I think that is, it's, it's a kind of like being caught in, in someone else's psychological drama, this. And in a way, they're the more responsible candidates because there are others yeah. saying, you know, that the, they will actively pursue the no deal, a managed no deal. Uh, you know, not even trying to renegotiate, which is e- even more reckless. Although I expect that um, that either approach will 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 end uh, will end either in a no deal and taking us out without the consent of Parliament, or having to, to to shift and ask the people again either through a general election or a referendum. Yeah, I mean, I feel more determined than ever. I think that 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 majority that we saw against no deal um, in Parliament should be maintained and I expect that it will be maintained because I don't think that the hardline Tories have managed to convince many, you know, many of their, as Rachel says, more responsible colleagues that this kind of just take us out no deal thing uh, is really a good idea. I guess what I worry about most here is the time that we're wasting. And I think that's why those of us on the pro-European side of things, we have to be ready and if it does get to a point where 
the possibility of another referendum or a general election is on the table. I think we have to be ready with the best possible arguments for our membership of the European Union. And that's the thing that we can do now. We can start to articulate those reasons and make sure that we're ready to fight that cause when it comes. What do you guys think the timetable is going to look like in terms of when some of this could start coming back into Parliament and people could actually start making decisions? Will anything happen before the Tory leadership or or do you think it's going to be after that? But that's quite a quick turnaround, particularly when you've got summer recess and then obviously the party conferences and everything before the end of October. I don't think reality will set in until we've got a new Tory leader. So at the moment, the rhetoric, as Ali has said, has all been around either manage no deal or we're going to go back in and, you know, get a, a better, in inverted commas, uh, uh, deal, i.e. one without the backstop, I guess. So, but once the, the new leader is, is elected, then they're going to have to confront the arithmetic, which in the end saw off Theresa May's attempts. And if you shift to a more hardline Brexit, you are going to lose support amongst Conservative MPs and you won't pick up any from Labour. And and, and yet that's what they're promising at the moment. And so unless they plan to prorogue Parliament, which I, they've all said they won't, and actually I, I just don't think that they would be able to succeed in, in doing that, then they have to, they have to get a mandate. Um, yeah. One of the things I think is quite interesting, we've seen both Welsh Labour and Scottish Labour come out quite unequivocally now for a second referendum. Do you think there's any chance that the leadership of the party is going to be shifting on some of this? Or do you think if it looks like they might get to much more of a no-deal scenario, some of those Labour MPs who have been reluctant might move slightly more towards that position? Okay, like being frank, mm. I think that we know broadly where... Labour MPs sit. Mm. People who've got concerns about having another referendum or frankly have sort of adopted the position of, of Brexit that their constituents expressed, those people have kind of had their say. And I think that the vast majority of people in the PLP, you know, know Brexit is is bad and don't want to agree a deal without another chance for the British public to have their say. I mean, I think that's where the majority of the PLP is. I think it's right for Scottish and Welsh Labour to have their say. And Lord knows, like, London Labour's also had its say <laughs> if we're talking about devolved institutions. But none of that really changes the arithmetic in Parliament, which is what it is. What do you think the role of party conference will be this year in terms of Brexit? Um, I think it's hard not to imagine that it won't be on the agenda because the members have made their feelings known on that point on several occasions. Therefore, if I was the leadership, I would make sure it was on the agenda and I would be talking about a reform and remain agenda because I think that's where it's where the Labour Party is it's where our voters are I mean I think they should just just get on with it because all of this like you know toing and froing about whether or not we think there should be a second referendum those days are just you know they're done those days are done um, wearing my other hat as Labour Say organiser while we're here, um, we have a motion for you to pass through your constituency Labour parties. If you go to laboursay.eu, there's a snazzy form and a snazzy motion. So you can submit it, you too can submit it to your branch Labour Party, CLP and or AMM, depending on which way... Which convoluted party structure you which, operate yeah. within in your local a, party. A, a, AMM is all, all member, member meeting. meeting. Um, depending on which way your constituency likes to swing, was what I was about to say. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that quite works. Um, fantastic. Any last words? Stop Brexit. 
Stop oh, taking drugs. Steve. Oh, Steve Bray. You didn't even put any effort in on that one. <laughs> stop taking drugs. Stop Brexit. Uh, sure. sure. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, had a great podcast. We'll be back on Friday. In the meantime, stop taking drugs. Stop Brexit. Uh, and please subscribe, rate and review. Have a lovely week. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton mm-hmm.